Well, I went to Costco the other day. I feel like you could really blow your whole grocery budget in just one trip to that place. I was thinking about this, this message and uh, decided to look up the membership, um, just what Costco says about membership in their, uh, on their website. It's really interesting. First of all, they say, of course, join Costco. Um, they have quality items, unexpected savings, satisfaction guaranteed. Um, they give an annual 2% reward. I'm not, I'm not putting in a plug for Costco, by the way. I'm just reading what's on their website. You guys can go wherever you want, okay? Um, uh, they didn't put me up to this. Um, but they give an annual 2% reward on you know, Costco travel purchases, additional benefits and discounts on many Costco services. You get a magazine. You can shop the warehouse and online. You get two membership cards. And again, they give a 100% satisfaction guarantee. They say they'll cancel and refund your membership at any time if you are dissatisfied. That's some kind of guarantee, isn't it? I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? I mean, you'll come out of the store poor, but you'll be a satisfied poor person, right? You'll be guaranteed to be satisfied that they took all of your money. But seriously, that is some kind of guarantee. Um, All of those benefits and 100% money-back guarantee and your membership fee if you're not 100% satisfied. I wonder if sometimes we think about the church that way. I give my money, so every time I show up, I should be 100% satisfied, or else I should be able to get my money back. We may not necessarily say it that way, but often that's how it works out in practice. I think if we're honest, that's how most of us look for a good church, one where we will be satisfied. Well, we are continuing our series on developing a biblical worldview this morning. The last time I defined worldview as the framework by which one makes sense of life. And as we looked at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, we walked away with the truth that a Christian is one who constantly orients their mind towards Christ, who is the source of their life. That is where the Christian worldview starts and ends. It always starts and ends with Jesus Christ. As we continue to think about worldview this morning, I wonder if we apply that same principle to the way we think about church. Do we orient our thinking about church heavenward? Do we think about church in light of who Christ is, in light of our new life in him, or do we think solely in terms of how church benefits us? If you haven't, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at a good chunk of chapter 4, but try to focus in on verses 11 through 16 really 7 through 16. Um, Ephesians is Paul's great work on the church. Romans is to Paul's understanding of salvation, what Ephesians is to Paul's understanding of the church. If you want to learn about the church of Jesus Christ, what it's all about, read the book of Ephesians. Certainly there are other passages, other books, other chapters, other verses, but Ephesians is really a declaration in Paul's minds, I think in Paul's view, a declaration of what the church is, what the church ought to be, how it ought to function. So we're going to look there to think about a biblical worldview of the church. A big idea for the book of Ephesians is that the glory of God be manifest through his powerful working in the church, the body of Christ. After Paul prays for the church at Ephesus to know the power of God through his love experience in the body, he says in chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
That is the big idea of the church, for God to be glorified in her, for God to be lifted up, for him to be 100% satisfied with her, generation upon generation. Does that describe your heart for the church? That the glory of God be made manifest through his powerful working in the church, the body of Christ at Catonsville? When you think of the church and all that it is and all that it is not, and all that we have and all that we have not, and all that you have or have not done with respect to the church, and you're thinking about the church both when you're here and when you're not, as you consider the church in the greater context of your life, is your desire for the church to see the glory of God manifested. We often praise God for his powerful working in us. We adore God for it. We rejoice and revel in how God has so worked in our lives to raise us from spiritual death to life, to rescue us from the power of sin, to free us. But then we forget that he's done all this not as an end, but for a purpose. God has not saved us for salvation's sake. He's not worked mightily in us for us to rejoice in his mighty works alone. He's not saved us to sit. He's saved us to serve. As we look again at the book of Ephesians, I remember one pastor who said that spiritual growth does not always involve learning something new. One of the most important growth, our most important growth is often in regard to truth that we've already heard but not fully applied. This text is not going to be new to you all. I know that Chris has gone through the book of Ephesians a number of years ago, but it will be a reminder, and I think it's a helpful reminder in this day and age. Again, I'm going to read for us uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 for the context. We'll walk through the first six verses. We'll spend a little bit more time in verses 7 through 16. And we'll see that a biblical worldview of the church understands that the church exists for the glory of God, that God is glorified in his church when, when the church walks in unity, that Christ gifts his church so that she might walk in unity, and that a unified church is a growing church. To put it another way, a unified church grows into Christ for the glory of God. That's the big idea of our passage. A unified church grows into Christ, or you can say matures into Christ, for the glory of God. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope of that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives... And he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves 
and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, thank you for your word once again, your word which is truth, which Jesus says sanctifies us. Indeed, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Well, most of Paul's letters are sent to address a particular issue, a question, or a heresy that is plaguing the church. In the book of Ephesians, you can't find any one particular issue or question. It's a very general letter, really a broad, sweeping overview, again, of the nature of the church. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul is reminding the believers at Ephesus, a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, reminding them of the nature of the church, the importance of the church and God's salvation program. He's reminding them as he knows that any church is in danger of drifting from the truth, particularly he mentions to the Ephesian elders in Acts that savage wolves will come. He's reminding them of these truths so that they may stay the course, so that they're not tossed to and fro when those savage wolves creep in the church with their worldly philosophies. This is a spiritual map, a spiritual roadmap intended to lead them and also redirect them should they start to get off course. So it is for us. The church exists for the glory of God in all its fullness, in all its diversity, in all its unity around Christ. That is why the power of God works so mightily in the church, because God is passionate about his own glory, and he puts his glory on display in the church. If you want to know how God is working in the world today and where God is working in the world today, if you ever hear anyone asking you that question, how is God working in the world today? I don't see it. Where is God working in the world today? I don't see it. This is it. This is how and where God is at work in the world today, actually working and displaying his glory in the church. As we get to chapter 4, Paul uses a familiar term, walk, in verse 1. This will set up a series of walks to close out the letter as he's trying to encourage believers to walk or live out the grace of God that is at work in the church in a way that brings glory to Christ in our section, they are to walk in unity. Later in the chapter, they're encouraged to walk in truth. They're also encouraged to walk in love and finally to walk in the strength of the Lord. But again, in chapter 4, Paul encourages the believers to walk, in verse 1, in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called. There is a way for a believer to live that adequately reflects their calling in Christ and the church. Likewise, there's a way for believers to live that is unworthy or that denies their calling in Christ. Paul focuses, Paul's focus here is on unity. And we see that from two participles that Paul uses in the next five verses. Let me read those again for you. Again, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So again, Paul's focus here is on unity. Look at verse 2 again, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. To show tolerance is to exercise self-restraint, to endure, to patiently put up with one another. This word is all about relationship. 
It's all about how we relate to one another as a group of individuals in the body of Christ. This particular command is important in a body with a mixed brood of individuals from different backgrounds, socially, ethnically, theologically, and whatever else. We're to show tolerance with all humility, gentleness, patience, and love. These qualities are to characterize our interactions with one another in the body of Christ. The second participle is found in verse 3, and this one commands the rest of the section. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That word for diligent there has been translated in a number of ways. To be diligent is to hasten, to be eager, to take pains, to make every effort. Paul says in 2 Timothy that Timothy should make every effort to come to him. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, talking about it, the controversial place of the law and the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, after it was concluded that Paul was to go to the Gentiles, they encouraged him to remember the poor, and he said he was eager to do this. It's the same word that's used there. The implication of the word preserve in our verse is straightforward. <clears throat> we have unity in the spirit. He says again, being diligent, again, hasten, being eager, taking pains, making every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Well, for preserving something, it means that we already have it, right? This is not something new. He's not telling us go out and manufacture unity. We don't have to try to make up unity in the church. There is unity already in the church, not the unity because of the way God has designed the church. But we have to be diligent to preserve that unity, to maintain that unity in the bond of peace. Peace is what we have, what we've been given in Christ. As we look back at chapter 2, we know that we've been, God has made peace between us and himself in Christ, and that God has made peace between us and one another in the body of Christ. When you talk about that conflict between Jews and Gentiles, that was a major conversation that goes on throughout the course of the Bible, throughout the course of Scripture. There was a dividing wall of commandments because they had the Old Testament law. There became this um, this, uh, this, this separation, essentially, uh, between Jews and Gentiles. Humanly speaking, there was this division. But in the church, all of that's broken down. Because in the church, all of us come together, are brought together in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Again, in other words, what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been given as members of Christ's church is to be humbly, gently, patiently, lovingly tolerant with one another in our differences. But more than that, we are to make every effort to hasten, to have a sense of urgency, to be eager, to take pains, to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Again, the last time we talked about worldview, we concluded that a Christian is constantly orienting their thoughts towards Christ. Everything that we do, everything that we are, is run through the grid of who Christ is, what he's done. He has secured peace for us. He has placed us in a body with other believers. Therefore, maintaining that unity that Christ has purchased with his blood should be of utmost importance to each of us. Is that in your hearts? Do you think about that often? Is that a desire of yours as a member of Christ's church? What does this unity look like? Where does it come from? He fleshes that out further in verses 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. 
Why should we have a sense of urgency, an inner conviction, a drive, a sense of diligence in preserving the unity of the spirit and the body? It's because we are one body. In the original, the word one is placed first at the, each of, at, at the front of each of these little phrases for emphasis. One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We have one faith, beloved. And all of us have been called into this one faith by the one true and living God. Jesus talks about this in his high priestly prayer that we covered in John chapter 17. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are me, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in uni- perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Christ prays that we would have the same essential unity as the Godhead. He says, I and me, I I and you, you and me, I want for them to have that same essential unity. Jesus prayed for this to the Father. That's why we have the church today. We are all one in the spirit, saved by Christ the Lord and under one father who's over all. But more than that, Paul says, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit because we have each been gifted by Christ for this purpose. Look at verse 7. Again, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He has a little bit of a a rabbit trail in verses 8 through 10. And then he gets back to it in verse 11. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive, led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. But Christ has gifted us in order to enable us to preserve the unity that he's given the spirit. As we use those gifts, the body grows, the body thrives, unity is maintained, and the church glorifies its head. As I think about where we are in our life as Catonsville Baptist Church, this stage of life that we're in, this is probably one of the most important aspects of the church that we can be reminded of. There are so many things that would divide us nowadays. So many things in the world that divides the world. So many things in our lives that, that, that cause us to drift apart. Even, I mean, just as simple as looking at the, the impact that COVID has had on the world. The impact that COVID has had on the church. Causing us not to be able to gather for a period of time. And then when we gather together, it's, it's strained, it's difficult. Um, we're still trying to figure things out. Some people are still uncomfortable, uncomfortable by it. There are so many things in the world that are set toward dividing. But God has given us something special in the church. He has gifted us so that we could come together. And so that as we come together, we're able to build each other up. That's part of the point here in the passage. I wonder how often we think about that. At work from time to time, when we used to gather for meetings, we would... uh, 
we would have these meetings over the phone. This was pre-COVID, so we, we weren't doing the Zoom thing. Uh, so you couldn't see everyone's face. You would just be on the phone hearing people call in. And, and every once in a while, they would ask, are you checked in? And so they call roll. And so you're supposed to say your name, but you're also supposed to say you're checked in. And I guess that's kind of a way of you know, saying I'm engaged, I'm focused, I'm here, I'm in it. I mean, I don't, I don't know why in the world I would be talking on the phone and saying my name on the phone if I'm not engaged or if I'm not, you know, here. But, I mean, I, I guess it makes sense, right? I mean, they just, they want you to say it verbally because if you say it verbally, then you're owning it. Well, I wonder how much of us in the church are checked in. I mean, certainly you have that segment of the church population who just don't come, Right? They're members of the church. They're on the roll. You know who they are, but they don't come. They're not sick. It's not COVID. They just don't come. They're not checked in. But even for those of us who come, when we come, are we really checked in? Are we really engaged? Are we really here for each other? Christ has given gifts to his church so that she might grow. Again, verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Just as in verses 4 through 6, the one is emphatic in the original here. It was placed out in front to emphasize the oneness of our faith, the oneness of our body in those verses. In this verse, the one is placed out in front of the original to emphasize the specificity of Christ's gift. He gave a gift of grace a measure of grace to each individual person within the body of Christ. Grace here is the same word for grace in Ephesians 2, charis. And from this we get the English word charismatic. So yes, each one of us are charismatic Christians. That's okay. There's a connotation to that word that we tend to cringe about, but it's okay if you use it biblically. We often speak about grace in terms of the salvation event. We talk about it in terms of the process of our salvation. When we came to faith in Christ, we say that this was the grace of God given to us. But the grace of God is so much more complex and abundant than a simple one-time event. Paul talks about grace in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, He also says that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself to the praise of the glory of his grace. All of what he did, he did to the praise of the glory of his grace. It was all a part of his grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, also verses 5 and 8. But God being rich in mercy, he says. And then he says again, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's the grace of God that has saved us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. In the ages to come, not in this age, so we get grace in this age. In the ages to come, there's more grace to be had. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? To me, that's what makes grace so amazing in so many different aspects, reaching from eternity past to eternity future and everything in between. Peter calls it the manifold grace of God in 1 Peter 4. In our text, the same grace working out the plan of God for his glory to be made known in the church is also in measure given as a gift to each member of Christ's church. 
So don't think about your spiritual gift or gifts in terms of one or two items on a list. I'm not talking here about a spiritual gift test. Think of it in terms of a measured amount of grace given particularly to you by Christ for the good of everyone else you see around you. Paul says in Romans 12, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us. And he goes on from there. He says, through the grace given to me, I say to you. What is that grace given to Paul? It's the grace of his apostleship. That is the measure of grace that God gave to Paul to serve the church. And that's how he served the church. And we still benefit from that grace even today as we read through his letters. He says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Doesn't matter what gift or gifts you have. You need to be humble because you didn't get it on your own. And he uses the analogy here, as he does in 1 Corinthians, of the human body to illustrate. As we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We all understand what that means, right? That's pretty clear. We all have different members that make up our physical body, and each member together makes up a whole body. Any more or less would not be a whole body. Two heads on a person is not a whole body. It's something extra. A body without a head or without an arm is not a whole body. You may still be able to function, but it's not a whole body. You can make do. You can, you can figure it out. I remember, uh, a, I don't know, a year or two ago when I had, maybe more than a year or two ago, when I had an issue with my, um, one of my eyes, I got a scratch across my eye. And to this day, I don't have any idea how it happened, but I had to um, get some kind of a really weird uh, membrane put over my eye. And that thing hurt something fierce when they put it in. I mean, it was... It was like a contact, but it was bigger than a contact, and it kind of covered my whole eyeball. And I had, to, I had to wear a patch over my eye for a while. And, um, I mean, it, it hurt, and it was uncomfortable. And I, I just I could not function uh, just because it hurt so much. And eventually it helped um, because it helped my eyeball to heal. But um, I just remember that vividly, thinking about how difficult it was to function. I mean, I, I made do. It's not like I couldn't eat or drink, right? But um, I couldn't do my job because I needed my eyes to be able to see the computer screen that I was working on. I couldn't, you know, really get about um, just because of the, the pain that I was experiencing. So it, you know, when you, when you're missing a member of your body, it sets you back. It, it makes it more difficult. You have to, you have to, to, to kind of work around um, that missing member of your body. You guys get the point here? You get the picture? When we have a missing member in the church, it hurts the church. When we have a member who's not functioning in the church, using the gift, the measure of grace that Christ has given to serve the church, it hurts the church. Because each member is equipped so that the whole church might benefit and be, be blessed. And so if that member is not showing up, then the body's going to suffer. Christ has gifted his church, each individual member, with a measure of grace. That's a fact. No one's been left out. No one has to wait for it. No one has to pray for it to come down. Christ gave these gifts, and these gifts are operable. 
when he ascended. The only question is, what are you doing with it? How are we using it? Now, I want to summarize verses 8 through 10, um, just because I want to stay on target. He says, therefore, when it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also him is also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. This appears to be a quote from Psalm 68. The idea in the psalm is that of deliverance, and certainly in this section, Paul is declaring Christ as the deliverer. He is the one who ascended on high in victory. He is the one who has led captive a host of captives. That would be us. And he has in place of victory, in his place of victory, given gifts to men. The discussion of descending and ascending is all over the map interpretively when you read through commentaries and try to figure out what's going on there. The simplest, and I believe the best explanation, is that his descending was in his incarnation and his ascending was in his ascension to the Father. And in this way, he's filling all things, meaning that Christ is Lord over all. Often in Scripture, we would give two parts of a whole to talk about the whole thing. When you talk about him ascending, going up, and him descending, that's two parts of the whole, right? And so that means basically Christ fills everything. And he even says that Christ fills all and all in this section. But the point is that Christ gave gifts to the church in his ascension. You know how runners in the Olympic Games have a victory lap as they run around. You know, they're probably worn out, but they still have a little bit in them to, to run more time through the stadium. People often shower gifts down upon them. Or uh, the skater in the, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the skating rink after they're done, they'll skate around and people will throw flowers and, and roses and um, uh, bears and, and all kinds of things like that in to just shower them because they've done so well. In this case, Christ himself is the one who's showering people with gifts. He showers those whom he's led out of captivity with gifts. He gives them each a measure of grace. Christ was consumed with the glory of his Father in his incarnation. He's consumed with the glory of his Father in his ascension. And he knows that the glory of God will be manifest in no greater way than that the body of Christ is built up. And so he gifts the church to be able to build up itself in love. So again, I ask you, what are you doing about that? Have you identified how Christ has thus gifted you? What is the measure of grace that Jesus has given you to serve his church? And how are you using that? We talk about the problem in some churches being unfit leadership. But often the problem in churches is not unfit shepherds, but unfit sheep. Sheep who are lazy, sheep who are preoccupied with the things of the world, too concerned with their interests in the world, sheep who are unwilling to sacrifice for the good of the body, thus undermining their place in the body, essentially stating that it's not high on their priority list. People who would rather come to church, get fed, and go home than serve. On the flip side, you have those who are serving but who serve, who use that measure of Christ's gift for their own recognition and not his. They serve because they want to be lifted high, not to have Christ lifted high, not to lift up their brethren. Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. Yet right along with our society, we made an art of gravitating towards people in places that seem to serve our needs the most. 
And I don't mean to suggest that pursuing a place of fellowship where you will be engaged and edified is wrong. That's not wrong at all. But if that's all you're looking for in a good church, then you've missed the point of church membership. A church is a body. A body has needs. A body has parts. Each of the parts of the body serves a particular purpose. Thus, if you're part of the body, you have a purpose. And if you're not fulfilling that purpose, then you're a lame member on the body. Prohibiting the body from reaching its full potential. When things aren't going well, we're always tempted to look around at what someone else is not doing. When people aren't showing up, we're tempted to look at the pastor who should be reaching out. When it's too cold or too hot, we complain and look to the pastor or the deacons to make us comfortable. When a family is struggling internally, we look the other way or expect, again, for the pastor alone to bear that burden. When we come together, I'll ask again, what are you doing with the measure of grace that Jesus has given you for his church? Because that's what church membership is about. Not your 100% satisfaction guarantee, but Jesus's and the good of one another. In case we're wondering, those gifts never expire. They don't have an expiration date on them, right? Um, Our ability to use them may change as we get older and as life changes. Those gifts are still present. And we still ought to be using them for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. You'll be blessed by your serving, for it is true, as Christ said, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. But don't miss the point that we have all been gifted so that the unity of the spirit would be preserved in Christ's church for the glory of God. Well, why should we be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Again, because Christ has given gifts to each member of his church and the body for this purpose, but he's also gifted the body itself with particular gifts. He says that in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then he goes on from there. Christ has given to each one, to each member in the body of Christ, a measure of grace for the common good. But he didn't leave us with that measure of grace to figure out on our own what that should look like. In practice, he gave additional gifts to the body, to the church, in order to help them work out what that should look like. The verses that I just read are kind of a summary statement of a biblical philosophy of ministry for any local church. The end goal is that the body of Christ together be built up, that the unity of the Spirit is maintained. This is done as the saints are equipped to do the work of service, and the saints are equipped to do the work of service by these gifted men, these gifted leaders whom God has given to the church. As we look a little bit deeper in the great scheme of how God has given a measure of Grace to each one. God has given a measure of grace to some in order that they would be able to effectively equip others to do the work of service. Again, so that the entire body of Christ would be built up. These gifted men are like the fingers, the ligaments, and muscles of the hand that are necessary to tie the shoelaces so that the feet can get us where we need to go. These gifted men are the arteries and veins in the body that carry the lifeblood to the various parts of the body so that the body can function and thrive. These men are not the head. There's only one head. That's Jesus Christ and him alone. These men are not the ministry workers themselves, as if they're supposed to do all the necessary work for building up the body of Christ. These men are the equippers. The word equip in the original is a medical term, which means something like setting a bone. I think it's also been used 
to indicate how a net is mended together. Setting a bone or mending a net, that is equipping. And that is the work that these men are to do. To complete the analogy, these men are to set individual members in place to make sure that they know their role in the, for the healing and growth process of the body of Christ. And again, these are not just pastors. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. But all of these were gifted to the church for the same purpose. We understand that apostles and prophets were foundational to the church in the early stages. These and other sign gifts were apportioned in those early stages of the church to authenticate the message of the church. We still see the gifts of evangelists and pastors and teachers. In the context, the role of equipper, the evangelist was probably functioning more like a missionary who equipped others to do the work of evangelism. Perhaps this one was particularly gifted at sharing the gospel, and yet, as a part of that function, he served to help, to assist, to equip, and to encourage others to do that as well. Pastors and teachers, I think we understand. In the text, Paul is saying that the equipping is for the work of service. In other words, it is to do the ministry. The work of service is the ministry that is done within the body of Christ. It's the outworking of all the spiritual gifts, the measure of grace that has been given to each one. Again, Paul referred to this in 1 Corinthians 12 when he said that there are a variety of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We call many of the programs and things that we do in church ministries, and yet that's just a title. A biblical ministry is, strictly speaking, that which is done in and by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. It's the expression or manifestation of the Spirit in the life of the church through each individual believer. It could be formal or informal. You don't need an official title to be able to do ministry. We know that the equipper does his equipping primarily by means of the word of God. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you were made complete. I love these analogies here. He says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. That's the process of mending that the pastors and evangelists and equippers do. They, they help you to get rooted in the faith and the doctrine and the truth. They help to build you up in the faith and the doctrine and the truth. They help you to understand what Jesus wants you to do so that you can do it and everyone else can benefit from it. And be blessed. We talk about the importance of expository preaching, expository teaching. That's what we mean. We mean the process by which the preacher or the teacher exposes the truth of God's word to the people. Verse by verse, consecutive preaching, going through the word of God, not leaving anything out, preaching the whole counsel of God's truth so that we can be equipped to do the work of ministry. Well, again, Christ has given gifts to his church. He's gifted each member individually. He's gifted the church with particular gifts so that they might equip the saints to be able to do ministry. But what does his growth look like? And we see that in the remaining verses in 13 through 16. 
And he gives three different ways that this, uh, this growth manifests itself. Verse 13, we grow in maturity of the faith until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We will grow in our understanding of who Christ is together and thus grow up into him together to the measure of his stature, as Paul says. A mature, growing community knows the faith, knows the doctrines of Christ, knows Christ so well that it lives like him and imitates him. That is the idea of growing to the measure of his stature. People used to talk about wanting to be like Mike. Well, the Christian wants to be like Jesus. That should, should not need to be said, but... In our world today, we have to remind ourselves of that. The Christian and the Christian community wants to be like Jesus. We get to know him so well that there's no other person we'd rather emulate. And we encourage one another to do the same. That's the truth that we all rally around, being more and more like Jesus because our knowledge of him has grown so much that we know no one better. We grow to love him. He becomes precious to us. Is that true of you? Catonsville Baptist Church, can you say that you know Jesus so well that there's no one else you'd rather be like? When you come to church, you're so thoroughly encouraged to be at church, to be with a church because others know Jesus so well that they also want to be like him, and you can tell that about them. It rubs off on you. After you've gone and been dragged through the world all week long, you can't wait to be around other people who love Jesus. And we're striving to be like him. When we're growing to know Jesus more and more, and we become more like Jesus than the world, then we know we're growing as a church. Verse 14, we grow in fidelity to the faith. He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We must grow in our ability to discern the error of false teaching and teachers, not as naive children, but as those who are wise in the faith. Years ago, when I first began as a banker, we were taught to be able to distinguish real from counterfeit by knowing the real bill well. And that was really the best way. You get to know what the real bill looks like. You, you handle the real bill so much that you know when something counterfeit comes through. Likewise, we ought to get to know Jesus so well. We ought to get to know his word so well. We ought to encourage one another in that to the degree that we know counterfeit when we see it or when we hear it. There should never be a time when someone can enter this pulpit and preach heresy without them being immediately dispelled and run out of the church. Because again, we've been all striving to know Christ so well together that we are of one mind, discerning good teaching from poor teaching. Likewise for you. You should be wise enough to discern good teaching from false teaching. And if not, then you should be wise enough to ask your brethren to help you. When we're able to discern the truth, biblical truth from falsehood, false teaching concerning the faith, then we know that we're growing as a church. The third point he makes there in verse 15, we grow as a community of the faith. We grow as a community of the faith. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. 
we must grow in our love for, admonishing of, and diligent service toward one another. We collectively are to speak the truth in love. Again, it's not only the job of the evangelist or the pastor or the teacher to know the truth. We are to teach and admonish one another. We do that in love. That's what family does. What loving family turns a blind eye to the hurtful actions of others? What loving family allows members to sit idly by while the rest of the family does work? In fact, your family in the flesh is the perfect training ground for the church. When children are given chores, responsibilities, other members of the family are given chores and responsibilities and are accountable to do what is right, particularly children, when this is true of them, at a young age they become adults who understand what it means to have responsibilities, who understands what it means to be responsible for other people, to care for other people and not just themselves. Likewise, children who are lazy, disrespectful, not taught to be considerate of others at home, will do likewise when they get out into the, the, to the community. They'll do likewise when they get to the church. You ask people to serve, and they're going to say, why should I do that? We must be committed to serving one another. We must have diligence in seeking to supply what grace the Lord has given us for the body. This is how spiritual growth happens. If you're sitting home Sunday after Sunday, or even if you come Sunday after Sunday but are not serving, not seeking Christ, not yourself engaged, truly engaged in the life of the church, it's no wonder that you're not growing in the faith. This is how spiritual growth happens, together in community. Again, Hebrews says not to forsake our assembling together. The whole church assembling, our gathering together as one on Sunday morning is designed for that very purpose, to aid in our ability to bless each other with the measure of Christ's gift. We're gathering together. We're rubbing shoulders with each other. We're able to speak the truth to each other. We have times of prayer up here to remind each other of the truth, to pray with and for one another. We read the word of God together to remind each other of the truth. We sing songs together to remind each other of the truth. I come Sunday after Sunday, and I should be singing with all of my heart and all of my might, not for me, but for you. So that you can hear the words coming from my mouth and feel that encouragement and be reminded of the truth. When we get together and we have the opportunity to gather, to gather together, we ought to know how Christ has gifted us and be seeking out how Christ has gifted us so that we can use those gifts to bless one another. we talked about the effect that COVID has had on us, and certainly there are other things that are at work in this world to try to divide us. And maybe you say, I don't know particularly how I've been gifted. I don't know that you have to take a spiritual gifts inventory to start serving in the church. Well, I know that you don't. I'll say that positively. You don't have to take a spiritual gifts inventory to start serving in the church. In a number of places in scripture, it talks about various kinds of spiritual gifts, manifestations of the spirits, but I don't, I don't think those are meant to be um, a hard and fast list. I think those are meant to give us an idea as to how gifts, how the measure of Christ's gift manifests itself in the church in different people. 
And so we can look at those passages, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4 here, 1 Peter. We can look at those passages and we can get an idea as to how God works and how the Spirit works in various people. But the point is just to start serving. Reach out to people. Love people. You see someone hot here? Call them. Write them a note. Bug them. Get on their nerves. Right? Make them start screening your calls because you're calling them so much. Because you want to know how they're doing. Because you care. Because they are a member of the body. And because it's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just Chris's job to call everyone who's not here. And he didn't ask me to say that. We are members of one another. We're family. Do you sit in your houses with your family and ignore them? If a member in your family, in your household, is struggling, do you ignore them in their pain? Or do you reach out and help? That's how we ought to treat one another. Because we're members of one another in the body of Christ. Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. We need each other. That is what church membership is all about. It's about knowing Christ better together, growing up to be like Christ together, resisting false philosophies and teachings of the world together, using the measure of grace that Jesus has given us to build up one another together. When we become more concerned with speaking the truth to one another and using the measure of Christ's gift to serve one another, regardless of what we get in return, then we'll know we're growing as a church. Again, are you walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called? Are you seeking to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Are you seeking to build up the body of Christ using the measure of gift, grace that Christ has given you? Do you see that as a part of your duty as a member of the body of Christ? Today, more than, more than ever, I think the world needs to see that in us and among us. I give you this quote as we close. One author says that life for so many in this world is like an elevator ride. Everyone facing forward, no eye contact, no conversation or interaction. And then everyone rushes off to their faceless endeavors. The world is looking for a new humanity, a third race, which is not only walking in unity, but has open inviting arms and hearts. When the people of this broken, selfish world are made to see the unity of the body of Christ in all its glory... When they see a community of those in whom God is working mightily and to the point of this passage, a community for whom each member labors, then they will be able to do nothing but give glory to God for his great work. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the reminders in your word for how you are already working in the church. We know that you're working in the church. Sometimes we forget that you work in the church through us, that you have gifted us to be a part of that work in each other's lives. Father, I pray that as we um, walk away from this passage, that we would respond to it. God, that you would indeed speak to our hearts, instruct our hearts, convict our hearts where they need to be. And that you be glorified as we become a growing, thriving, loving, unified community for your glory. We pray that all in Christ's name. Amen.